As you begin today, uh, I want to ask you a question, and that's this. What is the date that your life changed? Perhaps there's one date that you can kind of measure time with. Maybe there's multiple dates that have turned your life in different directions. Uh, I've been thinking about this question all week, and so I brought some examples for me. One of the dates that changed my life was in April of 1991 when I was baptized. My dad was the pastor of our church, and he had one job, and that was to turn on the heater in the baptistry. He did not do his job, and so I think I had the coldest baptism ever. Uh, I now do cold plunging. It was a little bit like that. Um, There was also a date that my life changed on March 6th of 2001, and that was the date that my best friend didn't wake up in the morning. And uh, this is the first time that somebody really, really close to me had died. July 19th, 2008 was the day my life changed. It was the day I got married. Um, uh, October 31st. 2011 was a date that my life changed. My mentor passed away. April 10th, 2012 was the day my life changed. It's the day I became a dad. Still seems crazy. Um, and then July 10th, lots, lots of tenths in my life are significant. July 10th, 2016 was the day I became lead pastor of Cornerstone Church. All those dates were life-changing dates. And so I wonder, what's the date that your life changed? could be positive, like a, a wedding or the birth of a child. It could be negative, like the death of someone you loved or the loss of something significant. Here's the thing. Here's what I found. I found that sometimes the baggage that we carry is a result of what happened on one of those dates, or it's how we responded to what happened on that date. I have got this big giant pile of luggage over here that we've collected this month. And, and part of the reason why we're continuing to have it on stage is we want to remind you that all of us, as we step into this season, are carrying things. We're possibly carrying our events that have happened to us, or we're carrying the emotions attached to those events, or we're carrying the the unresolved relationship to those events. And how we carry that and what we do with that often impacts our relationship with God, our experience of God, but also our relationships with others. And so our hope is, is in the month of December this year, we might think about what would it mean for us to travel light? What would it mean for us to let go of this baggage that, that we're carrying that's, that's certainly making it hard for us to have room to welcome Jesus at Christmas, but it's also hard to connect with the people around us in the way that we like because we're still holding on to this anxiety and bitterness and anger and sadness and resentment that's keeping us from healthy relationships. In this series, we're meditating on this passage from Matthew 11 where Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I know for some of you, that last phrase where Jesus says, my burden is light, and that may be hard for you to imagine today because the burden you're carrying is so far from light. 
But my hope is, is over these weeks, as we go through this series, you'll be able to recognize that Jesus has something for you that may be more than you've ever experienced yourself. If you were here last week, we dove into the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, the baggage they carried as they experienced uh, differences, waiting, challenges that they didn't expect. And today we're going to dive into another story from the Christmas narrative, the story of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to open to this passage right here, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 to 25. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So if you just kind of look in the index and it says Old Testament, New Testament, right there at the beginning of the New Testament is Matthew. That's where we're going to begin today. But before we go any further, I have to make a correction. You know, sometimes in the newspaper they, they publish something incorrectly. I need to make a correction. Last Sunday, I told a story about my youngest son, Max. And I said that on a two and a half hour, for two and a half hours of a five hour plane ride, Maxwell pulled on my arm hair. Well, Maxwell was sick at home with his mom last week and they were watching the service. And so when I got home, I got told that I told the story wrong. It actually wasn't Maxwell who did it. It was Shayla. And so Maxwell, you're not in here, but your brother is. So I apologize. It wasn't you. It was her. She did it. Now you might say, Scott, why are you throwing your daughter under the bus? Well, because I accidentally threw my son under the bus and I need to have the right, you know, culprit be, be you know, known. So yeah, beautiful little girl, but man, she had uh, an obsession there with my arm hair. So I knew if I didn't do that, I couldn't go home today. So that's why we, we, uh, we did that. And so uh, now we can move on. So if you're taking notes today, this is your big idea. It's not about your children. It's about this. If we hold on to the life that we planned, we'll miss the life that God has for us. This is the concept we're going to unpack this morning in Joseph's story, that if if we white-knuckle and clench our fists around the life that we planned, we'll miss the life that God plans for us and that God offers us. Now, the context of the story that we're going to look at today, and, and this is kind of just around Matthew 1, 18 to 25, is that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Now, betrothal is not a word that we typically use because it's not a, a concept that, that works in our world often. There's been a pretty drastic shift in how people get engaged between now and And then, in our world, we call it engagement. In their world, they call it betrothal. In our world, when two people are in love, eventually there's an engagement. And if if you've not paid attention recently, like engagements have gotten elaborate in our world. I mean, they, they are meticulously planned. There are incredible, like, blogs, YouTube channels, Instagram accounts to help you plan them. Professional photographers are hired. Family is flown in from across the country, you know, elaborate celebrations are done afterwards. It's like an event that kind of rivals the wedding when it comes to the engagement. It's a huge deal. But in the day of Jesus, engagement wasn't nearly the giant production that it was, and it wasn't primarily based upon love. It was a betrothal, and that betrothal was arranged by the parents It's very likely that the couple that was betrothed did not know each other very well. It was very likely they hadn't spent a whole lot of time together. They would have never used the L word towards one another. They'd not sized up rings or gone to Zales. Like none of that had happened. 
Maybe the closest equivalent you could find of what an ancient betrothal was like was sitting at a car dealership signing a contract. Because the parents would sign a contract for their children to get married, and then that began a one-year betrothal window. I know some of you, you were engaged for like two weeks and you went off to Vegas and you got, you know, an, an uh, elopement there. Some of you were engaged for six months. Some of you were engaged for years. Well, ancient betrothals lasted for one year. And the purpose of that one year was pretty basic. It was to make sure that a baby bump didn't happen. Because a betrothal contract would be broken if the bride was impure. And that would be evident by a pregnancy. So that one-year period was to make sure that no one else had been with this bride. So that way, at the end of that one year, that betrothal would be validated. The other thing that would happen is that the, the, the husband or the fiancé would be building an addition on his father's home. And while he's building that addition, he's preparing to bring his wife there. And so when the addition was built, then he was ready. So when that expansion was complete and there was no signs of impurity, then a marriage would begin with a wedding. But as we're going to see today, Joseph's life didn't go as planned. His betrothal didn't go as planned. If you have your Bible open, look at Matthew 1, 18. There it says, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered that before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And so today there's four things I want to share with you to consider about Jesus and our expectations. And if you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want you to consider How we respond to surprises is one of the best ways to discover our expectations. You've discovered, like I've discovered, that life is filled with surprises. And and it's hard sometimes to know what expectations you're really carrying. You can know what expectations you're carrying when something surprising happens because you'll have a reaction that's rooted in what you actually expected to happen. And that's why I find it so fascinating, the language in the Bible. There in in Matthew 1.18, there's a phrase, it was discovered kind of as an understatement there, you know, it was discovered. And I have to tell you, there's lots of times as I read the Bible that I want more, that I want more clarity, that I want more answers, that I'd love to know more. I have this hunger for information because I hear it was discovered. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is how was it discovered? How did Joseph discover that she was pregnant? And guess what? We don't know. I'd love for there to be a pop-up there or a hyperlink or a footnote that tells us, you know, like the TMZ version of the Bible, you know, it'll just give you the, the kind of like salacious story. But we don't know. It, it's likely that Mary told him, but we're not 100% sure. I mean, they live in a small town. Did word get out? Did somebody's mom tell somebody's aunt, tell somebody's cousin, and that's how Joseph knew? 
We're not told how Joseph discovered it, but I have to imagine that if I was Joseph and I discovered that my fiance was pregnant and her name was Mary, my response would have gone something like this. Mary, are you serious? How could you do this to me? I mean, what do you mean you're still a virgin? That's impossible. Who did this to you? Where is he? These are the things that I would ask. These are the questions that I'd come to mind just as a normal everyday man. And I have to imagine that, that Joseph ran through the gamut of emotions. I mean, he's sad. He's, he's devastated. He's angry. He's like, oh, this was not what I had planned. And one of the other things the Bible doesn't tell us is the Bible doesn't tell us how long it was between it was discovered and what comes in a little bit with a visit from an angel. We don't know if Joseph wrestled with this news for an hour, a day, a week, a month. I don't know about you, but you've probably discovered some things in your life that cost you sleep. You've probably had decisions in your life that you tossed and turned and tossed and turned and tossed and turned and tossed and turned over. I have to imagine that that was Joseph's response. This is not what I had planned. What am I going to do? I mean, Joseph had a plan for his life with Mary and this wasn't it. He thought he was planning a wedding. He wasn't planning on planning a baby shower. And in a moment, on that date, Joseph's life changed. The surprise of all surprises. This is not what he expected. So I wonder about you. What do you expect to happen? Or what did you expect to happen in your life that didn't happen? What was that thing that you had planned and then a date came and everything changed. Or on the flip side, what did you expect to not happen? But it did happen anyway. It is often these events. It is often these not events that are the source of all of this baggage in our life. The things we thought were going to happen but didn't the things we never thought would happen, but they did. And in these moments, in these surprises, we discover the expectations that we'd been carrying. And Anne Lamott has famously given the best quote about expectations. She writes, expectations are resentments under construction. And so often in this season, in the holiday season, this is like the resentment season. Because so many of us are carrying around with us unstated, unrealistic, unmet expectations. And when our unstated, unrealistic, unmet expectations happen or don't happen, resentment, bitterness, anger, road rage, family drama, are the result. I wonder for you, what kind of emotions did those unmet expectations you had produce in you?
That thing you thought was going to happen but didn't? That thing you didn't think that was going to happen that did? What rose up in you in those moments? Or maybe what are you carrying today? I, I didn't see any rolling suitcases when I walked in this morning. But some of us are carrying anger, bitterness, resentment today because we're wrestling with our unmet expectations about life as it exists today. Here's what happens next with Joseph, Matthew 119. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. What to consider number two. Doing the right thing is not an excuse for avoiding the compassionate thing. Doing the right thing is not an excuse for avoiding the compassionate thing. So Joseph has this plan. Hey, I'm going to have this engagement. It's going to last for a year. I'm going to buy her. I'm going to build her a great place at my dad's house. Then I'm going to go get her. We're going to have a wedding. We're going to get married to this beautiful life. And it doesn't happen that way. And in that moment, Joseph had options. Let me give you what Joseph's options were. The first option that Joseph had is he could go public with the discovery. You know, it was discovered. Well, he could tell the world that. He could say, hey, Mary's pregnant and it wasn't me. Hey, my, my fiance, she broke this contract. And, and truthfully, that's what the law required. If you go back and read the Old Testament, particularly in Leviticus, it lays out what would happen or what should happen in a moment like this. That should be public. There should be accountability. This was a big deal. Option one is the righteous thing to do, but Mary would be in grave danger and it would cost Joseph nothing. You say, Scott, why would Mary be in grave danger? Well, there's a passage in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, which tells us what often happened. In that passage, there's a woman caught in adultery who's dragged to Jesus by the religious leaders, and it's suggested that following the law requires her stoning. For those of you not, not from church, I'm not describing crack. I'm describing rocks. I'm describing capital punishment. In this day, if you broke a marriage contract and one party had adultery with somebody else, the consequence was death. And according to the law, Joseph had every right to go public. It would cost him nothing and it would cost Mary her life. That was option number one. But he also had option number two. And option number two was he could divorce her secretly. He could say, hey, we had this contract. We had this deal. You broke it. You're pregnant. So I'm just going to walk away, but I'm not going to, you know, make a big deal out of it. And option number two is another righteous option, but it would ruin her reputation and it would cause problems for Joseph. So now she would have this like scarlet letter on herself about what she had done. And for Joseph, he'd have to answer a lot of questions. Hey, weren't you engaged? I thought I saw like an announcement somewhere. Like I thought you were going to get married. What happened with that? Like he'd have to answer all of these questions. And so as the text says, if you still have your Bible open and in Matthew 119, it says Joseph was a righteous man. He was a good dude. And he intended to follow the law, but he was going to do it in the most compassionate way possible. That's why he passed on option number one. But he was planning to go down the road of option number two. 
even though that was going to mean there was going to be stuff for Mary to deal with, and he probably was going to have some baggage himself. Because he was going to have to carry around. That's probably not a good Joseph bag. Let me get a better Joseph bag. We'll do this one. Army green. He, he was going to have this baggage that he had to carry around everywhere. And that's explaining the story about Mary. He didn't do anything. He did nothing. But he was still going to carry around baggage, having to explain and tell the same story over and over and over again. And like us, our baggage is often the result of how we respond to the unexpected. Sometimes we make the best choice that we can, but we still end up with a consequence. Living in a a fallen and broken world. We still carry around some consequence to it, some emotion that's attached to it. Because life doesn't go the way we plan. I've asked you this question enough times. I'm not going to ask it again, but I will just say, since I've been here for seven and a half years, on multiple occasions, I've asked you, how many of you are where you thought you would be at this point in your life? Very few hands go up. Many of you are not living where you thought you would live. You're not sitting next to the person you thought you would sit next to. You're not going to welcome the people at Christmas you thought you were going to welcome at Christmas. Your 401k, your bank account is not where you thought it would be by this point. And so what has your unexpected life looked like? And can you connect today with with Joseph, not because you understand all that he went through, but because you have experienced an unexpected life too. And I have to tell you, I am incredibly impressed by Joseph. I know a lot of times we, we, we like to kind of tear down our heroes these days. We like to talk about how people blew it. But Joseph responded better than I think most of us would. I mean, how would you have responded if you were engaged to somebody and you feared they were pregnant by somebody else? Probably not great. And, and what Joseph does is he does, he does this righteous Thing. I love what Daniel Darling says. He says, Joseph didn't make a decision out of immediate anger. He wasn't irrational and unstable. For a young man who'd just seen his life turn upside down, he demonstrated remarkable grace and poise. He took time, assessed the situation, and seeing the humanity of Mary, he made the choice that would be best for her. Not for himself, not the choice that would cost him nothing, but it'd be best for her. Well, there's actually a third option for Joseph, and we see it beginning in Matthew 1.20. This is what the text says. But after he'd considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's not been unfaithful to you, Joseph. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the Lord had commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. Third thing to consider 
is following Jesus means embracing a life of adventure. If you're going to follow Jesus, life is not going to be predictable. It's not going to be safe. It's not going to be simple. It's not going to follow your plan. So for a moment, I want you to put yourself in Joseph's sandals. Because he didn't wear shoes. He wore sandals. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals. And think about this. He's thinking to himself, this is not going to be the marriage you expected. Because you're marrying somebody that everybody is going to be able to do the math at your wedding and know how the math worked. This is not going to be the oldest son you expected. Any parents in there? Any, any parents here? Raise your hand. Okay. All of you parents know this. Your first child is an experiment. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You have all these beliefs of the things you're never going to do. When we had kids, we swore we would never put our kids on leashes. <laughs> and then we had a two-year-old and twins, and our kids all wore leashes. You know, we just gave up that, that belief. And can you imagine, you're, you're not, no one's prepared to be a parent and your first child is the son of God? Can you imagine that weight? He's thinking to himself, this isn't going to be the reputation you expected. And this isn't going to be the life you expected. There's this myth floating around in the world that following Jesus is boring. And I, I understand where it comes from. I'll get to that in a second. But when you read scripture and you see the people who follow Jesus, their lives were anything but boring. But if following Jesus is for you about not sinning, if that's the focus of your life, it does lead to a very boring life. If your goal is to just not do bad things, you end up avoiding all the bad things probably all the fun things, and you do all the not fun things. I know this because for a long time, this was my vision. It wasn't like I grew up with this idea, like it being actively taught. It was something I just kind of picked up along the way that I needed to focus on not doing the bad things. And I can remember playing baseball as a kid. I played baseball all the way through high school. And I was in junior high and I was playing baseball one day and we were out at second base taking ground balls. It was me and Kyle. We were the two second basemen on the team. We're taking ground balls and I had one of those what would Jesus do bracelets because it was the 90s and everybody had one of those. And we're taking ground balls and out of the blue... Kyle says to me, so Scott, what would Jesus do? And I'm like, I think I missed the ground ball went right past me. And I said, what? He goes, well, I mean, if Jesus was me, what would Jesus do? I mean, in the baseball world, we call that a softball or a watermelon. I mean, that's just a really hard pitch to miss. But I whiffed. I whiffed so bad. Because what I proceeded to tell Kyle was, Kyle, what would Jesus do? Nothing that you're doing. I'd say, you know, Kyle, he wouldn't um, get together with his girlfriend. Uh, he wouldn't smoke pot. Uh, he wouldn't drink. He wouldn't curse. Uh, he wouldn't rebel against his parents. I just listed all of Kyle's favorite activities, by the way. <laughs> I was a total jerk. 
And what's so interesting is that Kyle never asked me another question about my faith ever again. (laughs) Because my vision was shaped more by the don'ts than it was shaped by the do's. And I had yet to discover that following Jesus means embracing a life of adventure. That it's not about all the things that you don't do. But it's about saying yes to God and wherever he takes you. Let me give you some examples from this church. This is Shelby Ray Myers right here. Shelby Ray grew up in our church. She was part of the missions team for a season, went to Zambia. She's now living in Phoenix and she's a nurse. And as a young, single, 20-something woman, she discovered the problem of foster care in Phoenix And so as a young, single nurse, she took on a foster care child with special needs. She's preparing to take on her second foster care child with second needs. Why? Because she doesn't have anything to do? Because she doesn't have enough places to spend her money? No, because that's what she feels like following Jesus means for her. A life of adventure. I put my friend Chris Inman's picture up here earlier. Chris went to college and then went to law school. And then God said, no, you're not going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a pastor. Pretty big change if you have to, you know, be honest about that. I'm married to a lawyer, so I can make the lawyer joke. Well, then Chris became a pastor and pastoring didn't go the way that he expected. And so burned down and beaten up, he left pastoring and then went back to be a lawyer. And now he's the best encourager this pastor's ever met. It's not the adventure that he thought God was going to take him on. John Bundy moved to Prescott to be an eye doctor in Prescott. And he thought he was going to be here for a long time. And then God says, no, I want you to go be an eye doctor in Missoula. Not what he expected. Jane Michelson served in the armed forces for many years. And then she moved to Prescott, thinking that her life was going to go one way. But her body started rebelling with debilitating migraines. And a life of trauma came rising up too. Her dad began to experience dementia and mental decline, and her life today is nothing that she planned. Friends, life doesn't go the way we planned. And if I can switch metaphors for a second, I want to shift from my bags to my tent over here. A lot of us have turned a baggage problem into a camping problem. Because life didn't go the way you planned. And because it didn't, you're stuck. You've set up camp and you're not going to move on. Camping's great when you go out for a couple days and you get into nature and you have a good experience and then you come back. But camping out can be bad when you stay where you were never planned to stay. And here's a question I want to ask you this morning. Do we camp out in disappointment and discouragement or do we pick up camp and do we follow Jesus into the unknown? If life didn't go the way that you planned, are you following Jesus into this life of adventure or have you set up camp and you're stuck and you're not gonna move forward and so you're staying in disappointment and discouragement and bitterness and anger and resentment, not against people, but against God? 
And that's why the big idea is what it is today, that if we hold on to the life that we planned, we'll miss the life God offers us. Yes, you are not going to end up where you planned because you are not following you. You're following Jesus. And following Jesus means embracing a life of adventure. Fourth and final thing to consider this morning. Jesus doesn't promise us a life of fame, which is hard in a world that overvalues fame. I wouldn't consider Joseph to be famous when it comes to the Bible. Lots of people are more famous. Moses, David, Noah. Occasionally, Joseph will get one Sunday in December. But typically, even his Sunday is overshadowed by Mary. We don't know a lot about Joseph after verse 25 of Matthew 1. We do know a few things, though. We know he was a good dad. We know that he trained Jesus well. Because in Luke 2, it tells us that at age 12, Jesus went to the temple and he astounded the leaders at the temple with all of his knowledge. Who taught him those things? Who trained him in those ways? His dad. Joseph also didn't play favorites. In the book of Mark, chapter 6, Jesus goes back home and he, he preaches in his hometown and everybody's like, hey, isn't this, isn't this Jesus? And didn't he have brothers and sisters and they named them all off? Scholars believe this is an example that Joseph didn't play favorites. Not to say as parents, it's really hard not to have favorite kids. If one of your kids is the son of God, can you imagine how hard it would be for him not to be your favorite? But it seems like everyone in that community viewed Jesus the same. We also know that Joseph died before Jesus' public ministry began. Because in John 2, when he turns water into wine, he's there at a wedding with his family, his mother and his brothers, but there's no dad. In Matthew 12, his mother and brothers come to visit him. No dad. And in John 19, as he's dying, he looks at his friend John and he says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. There'd be no need for someone else to be charged to care for Mary if Joseph was still around. Reflecting on Joseph's life, Daniel Darling says this. He says, barely mentioned in scripture, forgotten mostly in church history, but remembered by God as a faithful servant. And for most of us, this can be our legacy as well if we're willing, like Joseph, to say yes to God. Here's a challenging question for you. What if you die and you're forgotten? What if, like Joseph, you're faithful to what God called you to? And you die, and everyone forgets about you. What if you're not recorded in history and talked about for decades or centuries to come? The founder of the Moravian missions movement in the 1800s, Count Zinzendorf, said it this way. 
He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Who wants that? Can I just say that? Like, like who wants that? Like, this is the part of the message that just jacked me like crazy this week. Because that's the story of hundreds of millions of followers of Jesus. That's the normal story. Now, yeah, there are some random names. Martin Luther, John Calvin, George Whitfield, Martin Luther King, Billy Graham, those are the outliers. This is the norm. Matt Chandler says it this way. He says, the man goes in the ground and the message goes on. It's not about us. It's not about us being famous or being remembered. And that is such a radical thing to say in our world where the, the number one desired career of the next generation is to be an influencer on YouTube. And so many of us have this life and this goal that we're holding on to, whether it's fame or achievement or some plan. And if we hold on to that life and that plan, we will miss the life that God offers us. Because sometimes it won't seem as attractive as our plan. It won't seem as desirous as our plan. But like Joseph, we're going to have some options the life you planned or the life God offers, what you expected or this surprise and how you respond is everything. So here's some next steps for you to consider this morning. First, what unmet expectations are currently causing disappointment in you or conflict with others? What are you carrying around that, that, are, that are just these unmet expectations that are getting in the way of you connecting with God in this season or you connecting with other people? And let me be really clear. I don't think all expectations are bad, but ones that are unstated, ones that are unrealistic, ones that are unagreed upon, if they're with God, ones that are unbiblical, those become unmet expectations and those cause profound problems. Number two, I want you this week to identify an area where you sense God is leading you to be more courageous and take your next step. It doesn't have to be that you're going to sell all of your belongings and move to sub-Saharan Africa as a missionary. It might actually be easier than going to Christmas and loving your family. And then number three this week, I want you to read Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, that passage you've been reading each week, and make a chart contrasting the heavy burden of this world and the light burden of Jesus. Because I want you to get real specific about what Jesus is inviting you into with this idea of travel light. And I took out my iPad this week, pardon my handwriting, I'm a pastor, not a teacher, but here's my chart. The heavy burden of this world. It's fame. It's wealth. It's success. It's reputation. It's exhaustion. It's shame. This is how I, I experience the burden of this world. 
And the burden of Jesus that is light that he invites me into, it's, it's rest for my soul. It's trust in him. It's dependence on Jesus. It's knowing there's no condemnation. And it's realizing that I am known, loved by my creator and by savior. I believe that this year you probably have some unmet expectations. You probably have some baggage and you may have a spot where you've camped out because of what's happened. And there's an invitation that Jesus is offering you this year to lay those down because he has a different life for you and it's a better life. It's a better way. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the story of Joseph. We thank you for the the offer and invitation you give us to come to you with our weariness and our burden and find rest for our souls. Jesus, I pray for my friends and my brothers and sisters who are here, some of whom are reeling because life has not gone the way they planned. And they're just struggling to get their bearings and navigate all these emotions. I pray in the places where they're carrying around baggage or they've been stuck somewhere for a long time. I pray that the gift you give them this Christmas is an opportunity for a different future. Maybe it isn't the one they planned. Maybe it isn't the one they wanted. Maybe it isn't the one they expected. But it's one where you offer them rest for their souls. It's one that you promise to come in and and bring wholeness where there's been brokenness. It's one where you promise to, to give them a burden that you will carry with them. And you'll do the lion's share of the work. A burden that is light. Pray for the things that you will call them to do and lead them to do that will be greater than they can imagine. Sometimes it'll be harder than they can comprehend. But every person in this room, Jesus, is known by you and loved by you and you have a plan for them. So I pray that you'd help them to unclench their fists around their plan. So this year at Christmas, they can receive yours. I pray that they would discover this Christmas that you are with them. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.